Hi, I'm Mike Nagrant, and you're listening to Hungry Magazine from Chicago, Illinois. Three, two, one more time. Hey there, welcome back for another edition of Hungry Magazine Podcast. In this podcast, I sit down with Chef Curtis Duffy of Avenue's Restaurant in the Peninsula Hotel. Enjoy the interview. Well, so I ate here Tuesday night um, last week, uh-huh. and uh, there was a dish in particular, your Alaskan king crab dish. Uh-huh. Um, you sort of had the sugar gloss on top with all the accoutrement and the cucumber on, underneath, and uh, it's probably one of the best things I've eaten ever. But I, I wonder if you'd tell That's me a little great. bit about that dish, tell, people, tell me what that dish was, because... I mean, you know, on, on paper, it's three ingredients, but it's it was a whole lot more than that. And maybe how you thought about that dish and sure. how you came up with it. Um, well, the thought process behind that was um, we were looking for a dish for Valentine's Day, actually, um, to go with our aphrodisiac menu that we offered for the week. Um, so we knew that cucumbers and, and crab were somewhat of an aphrodisiac. And then we evolved from there. We wanted to add, you know, some floral notes to it, so we, we added some orange water to the dish which we, we were making in-house. Um, so from that point on, we really wanted to focus on the sweetness of the crab and make a balance with it, with the acidity from pickled cucumbers, uh, also from the acidity of the calamansi orange, which is from a, a Filipino orange, which has a great deal of acidity to it. So we needed to find a really nice balance between the sweetness of the crab and cucumber for the acidity of the dish. That was that puree that was on uh, the top. orange puree, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, how do you find calamansi? Like, what? Uh, we have a purveyor in Santa Monica, California, okay. that is producing them, and they're pretty amazing. Yeah, I'd never heard of them, so that, that was amazing. new to me. Yeah, they're but, great. But I loved the sweetness and the acidity of it, and it just like it cut through all of it. Mm-hmm. And it, was, it was it was very sharp and very bright on the palate. Right. You know, it, it didn't get lost when you you know kind of crack that glass and everything goes in. Right. It's kind of right. cool. Yeah, and for us, it's it's always about you know, taking the most pristine ingredients that we, we can get our hands on and present them in a way that's unique and fun for the diner to experience. And that's really what it's all about. I thought it was yeah. interesting, too, is, uh, you know, there was just a lot of great little greens and things. Like, I remember you had, like, these little micro Romanesco mm-hmm. on the plate. I heard you, you have a purveyor. Uh, there's a Native American guy or something in Oregon or something like that? Yeah, actually, we, we have, I think that's what makes our cuisine very unique is we have a lot of individual purveyors and farmers and foragers that that we deal with on a, on a weekly basis, and we we have upwards of you know 120 purveyors that we deal with on a weekly basis. We love to support the individuality of of the farms and the foragers. So we have a guy in Washington who right now is foraging uh, the foothills, the Columbian foothills of um, miner's lettuce. Mm-hmm. First of the season, season they're brilliant, they're sweet, they're succulent, and we actually don't do anything to them because they're so beautiful in their natural state. They're really sweet. You know, they have a nice balance of uh, bitterness and, and sweetness to it. So we don't add anything to it. We don't add salt. We don't add any oil, any vinaigrette to it. It's just as is. And that's something about our cuisine is we, we take the herbs and the leaves and, and the natural roots and stems and things like that to introduce those to the dishes in a way of seasoning the dish and not just put it on there for a particular reason. Or color or something. For color contrast, the aesthetics of the dish. It's nothing like that. It's all about finding what that herb does in your palate and how can we introduce that into the dish. For instance, we could use oxalis for sourness and, and, and brightness to the dish as opposed to adding, say, lemon juice. Um, we can utilize um, sea beans that have a salinity to it and add that to a dish instead of adding salt and bitterness in the same way it goes with sweetness herbs and, and bitter herbs as well. So, mm-hmm. One of the things I was really struck by 
the meal, you know, like all 17 courses was, you know, dining out at places like the French Laundry or Alinea or wherever, I don't know, uh, Moto, those kind of places, or just the high-end places. And there, it, there always seems to be, and I don't want to call it a gimmick because I respect the food. Sure. But there's sort of these sort of, I don't know, you would call it like like if you call something like PB and J, right? Or you call something peas and carrots, or it's just tongue in cheek, right? Right. And likewise, because there's sort of this whole like, you know, we really want to redefine the dining experience. You have like all these, you know, you have the serveware from Crucial Detail and that right. kind of thing. What I was really struck by here was it was 17 courses. There weren't any like, you know, double entendres in the menu. It was just, it was really organic, mm-hmm. and, it, and the plates were flat, you know, you, you, you didn't have towers, or you didn't have, and that, I love that, and I think that people should still challenge the diners, but right. I guess it was really interesting to see a cuisine that just kind of stood on its own without anything, and, and, and particularly how organic your platings were. Right. Um, like, they really, almost everything looked like it could occur in nature, in a way. Right. So, I, I don't know, is that is that a philosophy? Is that... It's, well, part of its philosophy... Um, really, the philosophy is about, like I said, um, sourcing the main ingredients, sourcing the best ingredients um, at the height of their season, and then showcasing them in a way that's unique for the diner to experience. But for us, it's it's about we don't want every dish to look the same. Of course, um, it's got to be aesthetically pleasing, and um, it's got to eat well, and it's got to eat sensibly. You know, it's got to be it's got to make sense on on the piece of china that it's going on. It's got to make sense um, on on the flatware that you're using. It's got to make sense all the way around. Um, focusing on the ingredients first as opposed to the technique that goes behind it. Um, you know, Technique is second. Um, ingredients are, is definitely in the forefront of what we do. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's all about the ingredients because if you don't have the ingredients, you have, nowhere, you have no base to start with. And I think um, sourcing that from the unique farmers and the small farmers who really take care in what they do transcends into what we do on a day-to-day basis because we get farmers in, into the kitchen that are super excited about the new ingredients that they're growing this year and and, you know, I've been working with some people over the, the winter months that are like, what do you want us to grow for you for spring and summertime? When spring and summertime comes around, what would you like for us to do? Mm-hmm. Something that you can't get anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So we have them sourcing out some seeds and, and things like that to start the, the growing process. So in some ways you're honoring the ingredients by kind of continuing to sort of place them in a natural setting. Absolutely. And make them kind of look like what they are often. Absolutely. We want, you know, we want to make that connection back to the food. That's, that's most important to us is... Um, the food doesn't come from the supermarket shelf. It comes from you know the ground and, and the farmers that that grow it. So yeah, I mean I think you you it's some interesting things like in the meal, for example, you have uh, the potato soup where you have sort of the surfboard of like bacon consomme on mm-hmm. top of like these little potato piers, so to speak. Right. And it's kind of cool because I, you know at Alinea, I guess you you might have had sort of. Uh, you know, like hot potato, cold potato, where it's on the pin. Sure. But here you're kind of saying, you know, you don't really need a pin. You can just do it naturally. Right. Is that a philosophy in terms of, you know, don't let serveware get... I, I'm not trying to, like, make you, you know, pigeonhole <laughs> where you were. Sure. But I, I'm trying to understand because I think it's kind of cool how, you know, it gets at the exact same idea, but it does it without even having, like, serveware do that. Right. I think, you know, with, with Grant, he's, he's amazing and how he's been able to... Introduce the new service wear in, in a different way to eating. I think it's brilliant the way um, that he does that. And, and his partner, Martin, is super talented and, and understands the philosophy of what Alinea is and, and understands, you know, what Grant is trying to achieve. For us, it, it really was never about that. You know, it's, it's about we don't have the luxury of being able to 
have so, a serverware designer on exactly. Staff. I don't have somebody on staff to do that. So for us, we have to we have to look at it a different way. You know, we have to look at it. Um, you know, we can we can certainly do those things differently. You know, yeah. and it's just a different thought process on how to achieve it. One of the things you do have a luxury of having on staff is uh, a bread baker, right? Or, uh huh. Yeah. Which I, you know, Mike is really good at Alinea. Yeah, he's fantastic. Um, but I, I was really, I, you know, I was really blown away by the bread service at L2O when I ate there earlier mm-hmm. this year. But I thought the bread service here was on par with that or better. Um, especially I was blown away by that basil waffle with the coconut. The coconut, right. So that's kind of a good thing to have, I think. And, yeah. and I wonder, do you do you conceive of the, the breads in concert with the plates, or do the breads come first or later? How does that? We, we actually... Um, after we design the menu, like for instance, you know we have the spring menu that's um, slowly taking shape. Um, the concepts and the ideas are down on paper. Um, now it's just about um, working the concepts in the kitchen and, and transcending them into the, the actual dishes and start to eat them and see where we need to tweak them. Um, same with the bread. Same philosophy with the bread. We'll have, you know, we'll look at five or six different breads that we want to achieve. Maybe a savory donut or a savory uh, scone or something like that. We want to put onto the menu, we got to figure out where it's going to go in the menu, what dish we're going to pair it with, and then what what's going to actually pair it. You know, how is it going to pair with that dish? Is it an herb element? Or is it the salinity of something? Is it a sweetness that it needs? So when you eat the dish together, it's it balanced. That's that's what we look at from the bread standpoint. So the 500-pound grill about Avenues, and it's always been, it was for Graham, it was for, you know, I don't know, but I mean, it's sort of this idea of the room, because you guys have, have sort of brought like a completely different cuisine to you mm-hmm. know what maybe avenues was at one time or what hotel dining is now or whatever that is i guess one of the things i was curious about maybe what you what you've done with that a little bit i mean i guess i noticed for example like those bud vases are like look very modern they're these mm-hmm. sort of like black teardrops and i don't know if the art in the corner that's very monochromatic it's kind of cool like the fabric art or whatever it sure. is um it sort of seems to mirror the cuisine a little better or I don't know if those were conscious things that you guys have done to change the room a little bit. Yeah, we're always actually looking forward to constant change in everything that we do. So artwork and and service pieces and and table line, table layout, which which we're actually going to change this week. Um, conceptualizing the whole table layout, um, the artwork we're starting to work with a local um, artist who's going to bring in actually pieces we're able to hang on the wall um, and rotate every three months. So we have a, a different feeling in the room each time. Say you come back in three months, it'll have a different feeling and the lighting and things like that. So that's something we're always looking forward to because obviously you can't change the aesthetics of the room right. tenfold, otherwise you're going to go bankrupt. And but it's, it's an expensive proposition. It is an expensive for, proposition. So we have to look, in this economy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we have to look at creative ways to, to make the room more aesthetically pleasing, and these are subtle changes that we're able to make that doesn't really cost us a lot of money. So. Talk about redefining the dining experience in a way. How important is that to you? I mean, you talked about the room and that kind of thing. I mean, that's certainly something that, you know, Alinea did and, and, you know, the top restaurants are doing. I wonder, you know, how important is is the whole dining experience to you as well? Well, for us, it's got to be an entire package. It has to be about, you know, the ambiance. It has to be about service, wine service. Uh, The service team needs about the food. They all need to be equally measured. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and we're always constantly trying to push forward. For us, it's, it's not about really competing with um, the rest of the restaurants. Um, we're not really too concerned about what Alinea is doing and what Charlie Trotter is doing and what Everest and all these other great restaurants in the city are doing. We're not really concerned about what they're doing. We're concerned about how we can make aesthetic 
um, appeal to what we're doing on a day-to-day basis. Um, so we're constantly analyzing what we're doing. We're always uh, in that terms of in terms of cuisine, in terms of service, in terms of the ambiance. We're always analyzing what we're doing, and hopefully we we'll make aesthetically uh, conscientious decision on what we're doing and hopefully we're making the right decision and move forward. That's really what we're about. One of the luxuries you've had maybe that a lot of chefs don't have is some time to think in the sense of uh, you were in the food lab when Alinea was getting started and you Mm -hmm. guys had that six month period and then I know you had the recently you had a little bit of a layoff between Christmas and um, do you like that? Um, Is that useful for you as a chef? I know some chefs like to be in it every single day because in, in yeah, it's hard to like come up with new ideas in that, but it also some people like that, but some people like to take the step back. How, did, how has that helped you or not? Yeah, we've we had the luxury of having the entire month of January off for a, an annual closing, um, which in that terms we're able to make some repairs to the restaurant. As a chef, to be able to step out of the kitchen, I think it's a huge asset. Not necessarily to go out and dine and experience everything else. Um, what we focused on really was, I set a goal in, in December was to create 31 new dishes for every day that, that I was off in January and I succeeded that goal you know I did about 35 dishes conceptualized on paper they're not constructed on the on the plate yet but those are all um, ideas that we have down for new dishes for the spring and summer and the cannelloni the cannelloni yeah I like that That's that was really uh, a new dish that we just put on a couple weeks ago that we're still fine-tuning we're still making some tweaks every day to make it a little bit better um, until we're 100% happy with it um, the crab dish is fairly new, which, uh, you know, all those dishes are going to go away. You know, the thing about the crab dish, I, and I, I don't, again, I don't know if you were thinking this or whatever, but I thought it was like sort of, it was weird, and, and I feel like I'm putting too much into it, but it was sort of like a metaphor between spring and winter, because mm-hmm. you're kind of like breaking through the ice, the sugar, yeah, sure. to get into the, the cucumber, sure. and it that was just sense. really kind of cool how that worked out. <laughs> Never thought of it that way, but that makes brilliant sense for sure. Yeah. You know, the pork dish is new. We're just now starting to get some... Uh... So, in, in Reach of a Chef, Michael Roman talked about you a little bit, and one of the things I think was, you know, I think interesting to me, and I didn't remember it until I went back and thought about you recently, and uh, you did pastry at Trio, mm-hmm. right? Yep, I did. What was... Um, how does that inform what you're doing today? I mean, how involved are you in the pastry now, and, you know, um, is that an important thing to your formative time as a chef? Absolutely. I think the the training that I had as a pastry chef, and, um, you know, I I did a little pastries in every restaurant that I worked at. I think it's very important for for a cook to have his hands in the sweet world because the discipline and the details that are are in a pastry chef are completely different than a savory savory cook. When I took the chef position, the pastry chef position with Grant, it it was an opportunity to showcase what I could do and see where I wanted to be. In the, in the savory world, and I think it was it was a great, great time to be a pastry chef. Now I didn't want to be a pastry chef forever. Of course, I love savory food too much, but it definitely you look at things differently in the sweet world, and and you can certainly apply it to the savory world. You know, the discipline and, and the details go hand in hand in, in savory and sweet. Yeah, I mean, so in some ways, your philosophy for for pastry is, is introducing a little bit of that savory. Yeah, not only that, you know, it's it's. It has to be a seamless experience when you're in a restaurant. You go to too many restaurants in the city and the country that, you know, you have an enormously talented pastry chef there, and the food is just okay. Mm-hmm. And then the pastries outshine mm-hmm. what the restaurant does. For us, it was all about 
we wanted the dining experience to be seamless. So we wanted you to feel like you're not stepping into another restaurant to have desserts. Long progressions of menus. There's sort of that the the idea of going nowadays, like from lighter to heavier, sweet and savory spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, do you? Do, I mean, I, I remember you had the the sorbet in the middle of the course, yep. the sweet, and then you went back to it. I mean, I, I don't want to read into it. I guess I just want to know: Do you do you subscribe to that too? Do you 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 shift your sweet and savory palate? throughout the menu to change fatigue or do you believe in that? I don't know. Uh, I believe in it. I don't, I don't think I practice it on a day-to-day basis. Um, the crab apple and wheatgrass dish that you're speaking of um, really is a, is a, I guess, somewhat of a palate cleanser, if you would, but it's more of, um, you know, we felt that the wheatgrass, the flavor of the lamb had a, a, you know, because it's a grass-fed lamb that we wanted to make that connection that, you know, this is somewhat, somewhat they're eating and, and we wanted to make a nice transition into the next course and that's what each dish really represents for us is each dish should have enough balance that would transcend to the next course as well. And, so you're kind of setting up people's palates for the next Yeah thing. exactly and that's that's the whole thought process behind a, a, a large tasting menu is you know it's got to have a flow a sweetness and balance and savory and it definitely has to have flow throughout the entire menu. I really liked you have the Hato Mugi. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know People aren't familiar with it. It's I would I would joke that it's like the new farro, <laughs> but it's it, but it is it's like a barley like a grain that yeah, I've never had before. Mm-hmm. I dined here, but I loved it texturally, you know, because it has the softness to it, but it also has sort of the what I don't know if it's the endosperm or whatever, but that gives you a little bit of crunch or sure. a little bit. I, and the other thing too is it kind of you you put manchego on it, and it reminded me of like. You know, like I said, there weren't any gimmicks, but it was like a mac and cheese in some way. Okay. I don't know if, if that was <laughs> intended. That wasn't the intention. But it, but... it, it, it was because it was creamy in it, uh-huh. and, and, and those greens, like, I guess would have aped the noodles or whatever. But Yeah, that dish, um, that, that once again is uh, showcasing where we get the ingredients from. We have a gentleman who sources it straight from Japan. Um, it's an organic um, organic barley from Japan, what is what Hatamugi is. Um, it's a lar- little bit larger than barley. Um, so we toast it and we cook it in the style of risotto, and then we mount it with um, some manchego cheese, and then we we drape a really thin piece of manchego cheese over the top and melt it, you know, and then we serve it with um, a red wine reduction that's been reduced and then thickened, um, some sorrel puree and oxalis and oxalis pods and red and green sorrel and, and things like that to act as a balance for acidity purposes because the dish is pretty rich on its own with the cheese and, and the manchego tea that we pour tableside. So we needed some acidity to balance that out. But it's a beautiful grain. It's nutty, it's earthy, it's it's definitely of the terroir for sure. Obviously, you know, you, you started in the Alinea Kitchen, or, or you mm-hmm. started in Trio, and you have you started Country Club. You have a very long, you've been all over, you've been Charlie Trotters. Sure. Um, but certainly you spent a lot of time with Granite Trio and Alinea. Mm-hmm. Uh, when talking to Chef Ackett's you know, he said when he worked for Thomas Keller, Thomas's big thing was, you know, you have to do your own thing. You know, right. when you're here, you're in that rubric, and when you're at Alinea, you know, I would, I'm guessing, I don't know, but I'm guessing Grant kind of did the same thing with you and, and the other cooks. I wonder for you, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that was important for you to establish your own identity. Yes, absolutely. And I, and I wondered when you were thinking about doing that and how you did that, you know, what, 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 what you kind of came to in terms of what that would be or who you were, uh-huh. as opposed to, you know, in the Alinea box anymore. Sure. For me, it was about 
taking some time off. When I left Alinea, I wanted to take a few few months off and, and really think about and put a lot of thought into what I wanted to make my career of because it was at the point where I've been in these great restaurants, um, I've traveled a, a great deal abroad and, and within the country, and eating and dining and, and experience different kitchens and working in different kitchens, you're always going to take from where you've been. It's, it's, an, it's a natural process. Um, you take ideas, you take philosophies, you take technique. Now here's the opportunity that you're going to get a chance to, you know, essentially be the chef. And what is your cuisine going to be about? Who, who are you? And, and I think nowadays a lot of the chefs are, it, it's a personality cuisine. And for us, it certainly is a personality cuisine. It's, it's about who we are um, and what we wanted to project into, into the public. The more you travel, you get ideas, you take ideas, and you make them, you, you turn them around and make them your own. And that's really what, how we come about the food for Avenues and, and my food. It's about everywhere you've been. Of course, you take, you know, Grant was a huge um, asset to what I'm doing because his thought process is different than most people's. You know, he's... You know, we riff off of each other, we talk about ideas off of each other, and, and we get ideas, and, and I think we grew together when we were at Trio and, and Alinea. We grew, obviously, in the right direction and in the same style of food. So what I've taken from Grant would be the thought process and the creativity behind the food, you know, looking at food differently. Uh, something I've taken from Charlie has always been about the ingredients. You know, he's forefront. It's always been about ingredients, and, and having a great relationship with the purveyors and, and things like that, and that's really what it's about. So you take the two, you mix them, you come up with your own, your own concept. So for us, it was all about ingredients first, and then let's look at it creatively and move forward with it. I read that you have like 32 websites bookmarked about thinking creatively or ways to look at problems in different ways. Mm -hmm. Or if you talk a little bit about that, what are you looking at? And Maybe what have you been most intrigued by in terms of thought processes to get at new ideas? Like I said, when I first came on board here at Avenues, um, I really put all the books away. I shut the computer. You know, I didn't look at the magazines. I wanted to really figure out what I wanted to do and, and how am I going to voice my cuisine differently than anybody else's. And, you know, as great as it was to be at Alinea, you always want that disconnect because I don't want to be connected with that umbrella because you're always, as a chef, you want it to be your own style and your own voice. So that was very important for us, So, or I guess it was important for me. So I started looking at um, you know, different websites uh, that talk about creative thinking as opposed to food websites. Now, these are websites that have absolutely nothing to do with food. You know, Some of them are business websites. Some of them are our architectural and, and, and art concepts, you know, there's all about looking at things in a different spectrum, in a different way. For us, it's always about being open to new ideas and, and just different thought processes and looking at it differently. So you walk into a room, you automatically start looking, you know, you look at the lampshade or the texture on the wall or the, the pattern of the floor and you think of different ways that you could utilize that into your cuisine. It's really about being open to being open to creativity, I guess. Just attuned to everything as yeah, opposed to shutting your head down. You know, be aware of where you are and what's around you. That's really, you know, being aware. Like, you, you look at that piece of art on the wall right now and you can think of, that could certainly look like a dish in, in any of my dishes, for sure. So if I was at, like, say, I was in this room and somebody put two plates down in front of me, 
and one of them was yours, and one of them was like, I don't know, Charlie Trotter or something mm -hmm. like that. How would I know it was your plate as opposed to Charlie's plate? Uh, I think just the cleanliness of it. You know, it's very pure and simple, um, aesthetically pleasing. I think uh, a lot of my plates are artistically pleasing to look at. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, that, it's I think that yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm asking, I'm putting you on the spot and asking you to kind of describe yourself and <laughs> this, like, really, I mean, I guess that's what I would say, too. I mean, like I said, I, there, the word that keeps coming to mind is just organic uh -huh. and not organic like organic food, right. but natural. Like, natural, right. You know, like, if you walked in on your plate in the middle of the forest, except for the whiteness of the plate, would you wouldn't fit. be like, oh, you'd be like, oh, that belongs there. That's like flora. Or something, sure, you know, sure. you, 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 and so that, I, and I thought that was what was really distinct about what you're doing. Right, right. Keeping it natural for sure. I hear you have 35 different kinds of salt in the kitchen. Um, not anymore. Not in the kitchen. Um, at home. I do collect a lot of different salts at home. Something I haven't done in a while though. Um, but people who travel send me salts, and you know, if, if I know somebody's going here or going there, I say, hey, if you have the moment, just bring me some salt. You know, it doesn't need to be a lot, but just I'd like I'd love the idea that the salt, the different um, flavors that they bring, and, and the texture certainly is important. Assuming like it's not like a, a huge distinction, like it's smoked or something like that, is as a chef with the trained palate, do you sense that there is a real difference among a lot of these salts? Absolutely, yeah, because um, you know, because I know I, Jeffrey it, Steingarten once wrote a story about how you can't really tell the difference between all these salts, and I was skeptical of it because I felt like I really could. But, you know, so that's why I ask, and I'm curious. I don't even think you need to have a trained palate to, to taste the difference in them or distinguish the difference in them. I would challenge anybody to bring out, you know, 15 different salts and taste them for yourself and, and tell me that, you know, the salinity is not different than this salt. This one's a little bit more mild, and this one's so sharp in your palate that you'd only use a small amount. This one you could use a little bit more. You know, the textural mouth feel completely different, you, mm -hmm. know? you know. As you're eating somebody's food and... And you detect that, and you bite into a crunch of salt that you weren't expecting. That's exciting, mm -hmm. you know. Especially if it's a piece of truffle, and then you get this nice piece of Florida Sal or a Murray River from Australia that has texture to it. It's a nice crunch. So you're allergic to shrimp too, is that right? I am allergic to shrimp. <laughs> can you cook it? Or I can. I can't be around people who are cooking. I can't be. No. You know, my throat swells up. I get really itchy. I sneeze a lot. So I just rather not be around it. So you probably would never ever cook it in your cuisine, right? No, never. Which I'm okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm okay with. It. There's some, you know, there's some ingredients that you just chefs don't want to touch. Right. So. But not all shellfish, because you have king, you had king crab on there. Right? I can so. eat everything else. You know, actually, I can't. Which I th which I think is thank God for that. Because yeah. <laughs> if you ask me, I think I, I if I really had a gun to my head on the. The desert island. I mean, real fresh Alaskan king crab would definitely be there. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. For sure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I can't eat yabbies. Um, crayfish give me a little bit of problems, but, you know, I had a crayfish dish on when I was at Charlie's, and, and for the life of me, I was always bothering the guy beside me to taste the food because I couldn't taste it. And, and as a chef, you always want to taste the food before you're serving it. So Right. You know, I'm always asking the guy beside me, taste this, what does it need? Because, you know, I, even just cooking it right. would just bother me. I eventually had to move the dish off my station because it was so bad. One of the things I think I read that you said, you said that one of the things that hooked you on being a chef was sort of the instant gratification of being able to see a guest reaction of mm -hmm. what you created. 
Um, I think that's probably even more apparent now in this kitchen because it's yeah. an open kitchen. And you can see the whole dining room as opposed to, I mean, people would come into the kitchen maybe at a linea or a trotter sure. or something like that. But what's that been like? I, I mean, are you able to see that at the pass and kind of do you pay like really close attention? Mm-hmm. I wonder also, do you look at the plates when they come back? I know some I do. chefs do that. I do. I look at 99, probably 90% of the plates that come back. Because like towards the end of the meal, I think my wife started lagging. Uh-huh. And so she was only eating like half of the plate or whatever. Sure. And it was like, but it wasn't because she didn't love it. And I was like, and I know that I'm thinking you're looking at the plates and you're like, going, <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> no, we, we, we look at probably 90% of the plates um, only because we want to know um, the guests getting full. Is there something they didn't like? Is there something that we can change differently? Maybe they didn't eat the snail caviar. Then, okay. Do we need to look at, do they not eat roe? Did we ask them? You know, things like that. So most importantly for me, it's about are they enjoying it? So being in an open kitchen like this and having that chef's bar that's six seats right in front of the kitchen, we we instantly get to have that gratification because we can see the smiles on the guest's face. We can see them enjoying it. Or even if they don't like it, we can see that as well. So it's important, you know. Yeah, I think Tuesday night there was a younger kid sitting at the bar, and I think I overheard him say twice, like, this is the best meal I've ever had, too. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that must be nice. Though. Yeah, no, it's great, you know. And not only for me, it's it's for the rest of the cooks that are in the kitchen, too. We, we're able to engage in, in the people that sit at the bar and and kind of figure out what, what they like and what they don't like. And, and you know, they, they see that gratification as well. So that makes them happy as well. You talked about the snail caviar. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd never had it until I was here as well. I mean, I remember reading about it first on your blog. Um, I like it. You know, it's, 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 it, it has an earthiness that, like, regular caviar doesn't have, mm-hmm. which I guess makes sense because snails are earth, more sure. earth creatures than fish are. <laughs> um, but uh, I wondered, how are people reacting to that? I mean, it, you know, because like you said, you look at the plates and maybe it comes back or something. Are people, sure. like, freaked out? or <laughs> No, people, you know, as weird as it sounds, people, probably 80% of the people that come in, maybe 90% have never heard of it, never seen it. They thought we were actually making it. It wasn't a man-made <laughs> thing or it was a man-made thing and it's it's totally natural um the snails produce four grams of caviar per year for one snail so four grams obviously is, is not a lot right i mean we buy a tin of caviar that's 50 grams a pop and you know it, it's not a lot of not a lot of caviar and it's very expensive but it was important for us to pair it with something that was that you could familiarize yourself with so the carrots of course um are sweet and they, they're of the earth and they're dirty and they're they already have that earthiness to it, so we wanted to enhance the, the flavor by adding the snail caviar because if you eat the snail caviar on its own, it's pretty strong. Mm-hmm. You need something to balance it out with the sweetness of the carrots, but it is in-your-face dirt, and yeah. it's pretty awesome. It is. It's, it's like awesome. it, it's salty dirt. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> if you smell it, you know, it just smells like you could smell it. And if, you could, if you've ever been in, in a forest when it's been raining and you say you've been camping and, and right. things like that, it smells exactly like that. It does, and it brings you when you right take back. when you take that bite. Absolutely, it's funny because I was trying to think of it, and the only thing I could think of it is earth. But now that you say that, I I now remember that, mm-hmm. or I have that memory or that sense memory. Yeah. That's a perfect. And I think it's it's a great way to connect the people back to, once again, where the product comes from. You know, it's it's dirty, it's earthy. <laughs> so I talked a little bit about the blog. Um, you're doing a blog. Uh-huh. I think I saw you have a Facebook page. Yep. It's kind of a brave new world for chefs, yeah? It is. You have to. You know, you have to stay ahead. You have to You have to look at new ways to market yourself and, and brand yourself, if you will. Are you Twittering yet? I'm not. I haven't gotten into it. I don't know if I ever will. You know? 
But I think Facebook is a great tool. We get a lot of hits on Facebook, and, and definitely the blog is a, is a great asset. Um, you know, because a lot of people can't experience what we do. They can't, um, you know, come in and eat, whether they're out of the city or out of the, out of the country. But it's a, a great way to get people ideas of what we're doing and, and what the restaurant's all about. Yeah, I don't, it's funny. I don't have a Facebook page, but I recently took to Twitter, and I kind of like it. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. I, I don't know. The Facebook thing, I was like, I'm, it's like all, all these like people that I haven't talked to for 20 years, I'm afraid, you know? And then I was like, right. well, Twitter, you just can do whatever. And, and that's, do what happened. that's what happened, um, you know, the first couple months that, was, that I signed on was like all these people from high school started popping up and, and old friends and things like that, which is great. But for me, it was all about um, getting my name out as a, as right. a chef and, and marketing well, as a chef, not so much personal use. Right. Well, it's funny, too, because it's like there's that, those people and, you know, of course, not saying those people like I would do it too if I was on Facebook. I'd contact people that I hadn't talked to in twenty years. But the first thing you you know the reason you do it is you kind of want to see where they're at. Sure. Like sure. what are they doing? And it's <laughs> funny because you're probably like one of the guys that people are like, oh man, he's like a big time chef now. <laughs> Some <laughs> like, type of rock star. <laughs> you're like the guy that they like hate after they're like, they're like oh man. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny to see like the people from high school that are like, can't believe you're doing so amazing and you're doing so well and. You look so young still, and so you know that's humbling to see that. Yeah, hey, you do look young. I mean, you're 33, right? 33, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and it's funny because I think Grant got that a lot. Yep. And so, is there something in the water? Before you be. guys were I mean, a trio? I don't know how that he and I both look so young because we worked ridiculous yeah, amount of hours together, and you know, it's you come in 10 o'clock in the morning, and you're there till three, four o'clock in the morning every night, and. You know, the amount of hours of sleep that you get are four, right. maybe five if you're lucky a night, five nights, six nights a week. So maybe that's the trick. Mm-hmm. Supposed to more sleep, maybe it's less sleep. I've heard you know, people say that. They say <laughs> like those like really like hypo-calorie diets where you don't eat a lot uh-huh. and, and or you restrict and or like maybe it's like restricted sleep. <laughs> maybe so. I mean, maybe so. Cause, because when I get more than five, six hours a night, I'm actually more tired. Yeah. Which is strange, but your body's programmed itself to be mm-hmm. like, okay, this Absolutely. is what I need. This is what I work with. Been doing it for like twelve years, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you've you've said in another interview that you know your goal five years out or whatever it is, maybe it's two, three, I don't know, is you want to have your own place, right? You know, and I know that the people at Avenues probably understand that, and but they know that you're here today and you're right. doing the best you can do, and so I'm not trying to say, oh, you know, when's Curtis going? <laughs> um, but that that in mind, um, do you have any sense of what what that will look like, or or what what you want to do when you're when you're finally you know on your own, or what, when you're in your own setting? Sure, you know it's um, we want to have refinement dining, we want to have um, very modern atmosphere, um, very comfortable atmosphere, um, something that's going to obviously support the food that I want to do. Um, doesn't need to be you know, fine dining? Not necessarily. I want a place that, you know, people can go there and and experience a, a fantastic meal and have a great time and, and not have to feel like they have to dress up in a suit and tie and, and all of that. And I think that's something we're challenged with here is everybody feels that they have to wear a sport coat or, or a jacket or a suit to come to dinner. You know what? We'll, we would sit you in jeans. We don't care. Yeah, I noticed that. I mean, no. when I was here Tuesday, there were two people, two guys without coats. Yeah, we want, you know, that's the, we want to get away from that whole idea of having them feel stuffy. And we want people to be comfortable and enjoy themselves. So, 
Yeah, I, I have always felt that way too, and I, I mean, I, I, I honestly believe it when I say it, but it's like, I don't care if the person sitting next to me is like, you know, wearing like, you know, a punk rock t-shirt and no. jeans. That doesn't really impact my dining. But Not at all. Some people feel that way. I don't know. But I wonder if those are the people who, you know, the same kind of people who will come here and look at the 17 course meal, but the order a trophy wine that doesn't go with it. Right. You know, exactly. I guess I feel like it's like people who don't really like to dine out. They're right. just there for the show. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Maybe uh, you want to call them un uneducated or uh, not sophisticated diners, but you go to Europe, you go to Spain, you go to Europe, you go anywhere over there. You go to any three Michelin star, you're going to go there in jeans and a t-shirt, guaranteed. You, you go there in a suit, you're going to look out of place. Yeah. You go anywhere dressed up. Is that true? Like El Bulli? I've never been so long. Go to El Bulli, you go to Michelle Bra. You know, I went there in jeans and a t-shirt. Huh. The people sitting beside me had a dog they were feeding under the table. I mean, <laughs> they just wanted to be relaxed, and I think that's what we need. You know, we don't need to have to have a four stars restaurant. I don't feel it needs to be stuffy and, and all this, everything that you know. It should be about the food and, and about the ambiance. Which is kind of funny though, because some people still don't believe that. Even like the people who are the gatekeepers, so to speak. I mean, I really feel like, in some ways, people have treated Graham unfairly with his new venture. You sure. know, because he's like, well, we're going to do that, and then it's like, well. We'll give you two stars, and we'll give you three stars, and right. I feel like they're doing it because of that, exactly. not because the quality of his food has gone down, exactly. you know. And that's just you know. But then at the same time, they're like, "We love schwa, and we're going to give it three <laughs> stars." And you know, right. you know, so it's so weird. It is weird, you know. Yeah. So hopefully, people will become better at that and figure yeah. it out. So. You know, we look at the the Michelin Guide. You know, hopefully, I think you know they're supposed to be coming this year, and everybody's uh, geared up for that, and we're. Highly anticipating that. Right. But if you look at their website and you look at the criteria that, so the, somewhat of the outline that they're looking for, and you read it and it says cuisine. It's, they don't care about the ambiance. They don't care about the color of your floor. They don't really care about the china or the how old the place is. They're there for the food. Really? And it was interesting. I just came upon this not too long ago. I didn't know that. And for us, it was like, oh, God, it's all about service. It's about the entire package, which it should be. But even more for, so for them, they're focused on... You know, the aggressiveness of the cuisine, the purest, you know, the ingredient, the quality of the ingredients, the overall experience is... Now, whether they're saying that, I don't know. Yeah, but, I was going to say, I don't know if that was probably always the case, but right. maybe they're becoming more modern in their own sort of interpretation Possibly. of what's important these days. Because if I look back on the, the time I spent in Europe, it's like, yeah, I mean, some of the restaurants I went to, the ambiance, no, it's not that great. The yeah. service, not that great, but the food was amazing. Yeah. So you know, like give me a plastic spoon. I don't care. Exactly. <laughs> as long exactly. As it's good, you know. You know. It's all about the food and, and the the wine and the ambiance. So. Well, thanks for doing this. That was my pleasure. I really appreciate Thank it. You. Thank you. Thanks for listening again to another edition of Hungry Magazine podcast. If you have any feedback, drop me a line at m j n a g r a n at hungrymag.com. We'll see you next time, and in the meantime, stay hungry. Three, two.